You are listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. Now in its 20th year, the Lumen Christi Institute enriches academic communities at the University of Chicago and across the nation with the wisdom of the Catholic intellectual and spiritual tradition. Today's interview is with Russell Hittinger, the William K. Warren Professor of Catholic Studies and Research Professor of Law at the University of Tulsa, and longtime collaborator with the Lumen Christi Institute. We sat down with Professor Hittinger to discuss his scholarship in the areas of moral theology and Catholic social thought. Welcome to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. My name is Michael Bradley. I'm the Institute's Communications and Events Coordinator. And together with Mark Franzen, my colleague, our Programs Coordinator, I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Russell Hittinger. Russell Hittinger is the William K. Warren Professor of Catholic Studies and Research Professor of Law at the University of Tulsa. He is also a member of the Pontifical Academy of the Social Sciences, and the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas. Hittinger is the author of many books, including A Critique of the New Natural Law Theory, The First Grace, Rediscovering Natural Law in a Post-Christian Age, Thomas Aquinas and the Rule of Law, and, forthcoming and under contract with Yale University Press, Paper Wars, Catholic Social Doctrine and the Modern State. Professor Hittinger, thank you for joining us today. It's good to be back to Lumen Christi. You wrote your dissertation on fundamental moral theory. In fact, I think your dissertation was turned into that first book, The Critique of New Natural Law Theory. But now you're best known as an eminent scholar of Catholic social teaching. Tell us how your deep and abiding interest in CST first came to life. Well, of course, Catholic social teaching is put in Roman universities, is put under moral theology. So it's not as though I was completely leaving the category of of moral theory and moral reasoning. But I was always interested in the historical contexts and the historical legs of moral disputation. And, well, more than 25 years ago, I did a sabbatical at Notre Dame in which I assigned to myself the following task. I wanted to read every important papal document related to social, political, and legal issues from the 18th century to the present. That present was about the year 2000. And I prepared well. I went to Rome and I bought the 10-volume Bologna and Caridian Everything, everything from 1837 to then around 1995. Uh, the original document on one page, usually Latin, and Italian translation on the other. And this is what I did. Every morning I would park there by the football stadium at Notre Dame, walk around to my office, open it up, and I just read them in sequence. And I read them in this way. I'm going to make no prejudgment about what's in these things. In fact, prejudgment would have been impossible because although I would have considered myself somewhat learned 
90% of it I had never read before. I discover, for example, never ignore encyclicals or other papal teachings on the rosary beginning in the 19th century because Mariology becomes a fundamental source of political and social thinking for the very good reason that there were apparitions happening like all get out. I think France had a hundred in less than a century. And every time uh, Mary shows up and talks to peasant kids or to whoever, she always delivers social political messages. And so I just started reading them. Some of them have to do with dueling. Some of them have to do with the, with the exigencies of the labor movement. Some of them have to do with the French Revolution. Some of them have to do with the nature of the church or with solidarities, sodalities, excuse me. And so uh, I don't think I even got into mid-19th century, but I don't know how many documents, 50 or something by then. And I said to myself, and I was ke keeping careful notes in chronological order, that there's a lot more here than I ever knew about. And more here, even before rerum novarum, than what most Catholics might suspect. Rerum novarum does not come out of the blue. And it was at about that time that I met up with Lumen Christi, because one of my favorite thinkers from my undergraduate training and graduate training was Yves Simon, Notre Dame and University of Chicago. And uh, Yves Simon's son brought me to the Lumen Christi Institute at, here at University of Chicago. And I gave a talk on Yves Simon on the problem of authority. This was happening at the same time I'm sorting through major and minor papal writings of the 19th century. So it took me another six months to complete that getting up every morning and reading until the end. And by the time I finished, I was convinced that I had enough material to talk about for the rest of my career. So your first encounter with Lumen Christi was around the year 2000. Now, since then, you've led seminars and you've given many lectures for us and been involved with the Institute's work. Tell us about the seminars you've been leading for the past eight years or so. So, almost every summer, every now and then we take a break from the theme. We do a seminar that basically reproduces my experience of 2000. That is, in six days, five hours a day, although the students will have been reading for two months before we do this. Uh, we start before the French Revolution and go all the way up to the present. It's like a, it's, it's like a panzer attack through documents. And we can't cover them all. We can't cover 300 of them, but we cover 25 or 30. And I think the experience of the students is somewhat similar to my own experience when I did this the first time. You learn a lot just by sitting down and reading these things in sequence. Forget about having profound ideas about it at first. Forget about tying it all together. Just jump in and start reading. And we do that almost every summer, uh, now usually at Berkeley. And we also do uh, a LCI summer course on truth and authority in Augustine City of God. Which is what you'll be leading this summer? This summer. 
How does one identify CST teaching documents? What, what are the characteristics of such a document that enable the reader to perceive it as mm -hmm. a document pertaining to this set of documents which we okay. describe as social right. teaching? Well, you know, once upon a time it was not called social teaching. It was called civil. Doctrina civilis. And the word social was swapped out for civil rather late in the game. I'm going to say that transition doesn't even happen entirely until Pius XI. 1931. Yeah. Quadragesimo anno. But, okay, the first thing we go on is if the pontifical document is somehow keyed to rerum novarum, you know, a 20th, a 25th, a 50th, a centenary anniversary of Rerum Novarum, or if it's been keyed to the 1966 uh, encyclical Popolorum Progressio. We know right away, call it a social teaching because it's keyed to uh, going back 10 pontificates to social teachings. So that's a no-brainer. Uh, another way to deal with this is whether or not the encyclical is addressed to all men of goodwill. But that begins in Pachum and Terrace, spring 1963. So if that's not adequate for going back 150 years prior to that. But if it's to all men of goodwill, it's usually something having to do with social life, broadly speaking. My own preferred way of tackling this subject is to see whether the document has a teaching on the three societies necessary for human flourishing. This is an old kind of Thomistic idea, but also was very important for Leo XIII and for Pius XI. There are many kinds of societies and associations and social configurations, but three are called necessary for human flourishing what's called domestic order, which includes two different societies, the matrimonial society and the, the family society. It, it, it's actually a complex society for that reason. I mean, imagine human happiness and, per, and, and perfectibility without passing through that society. The second would be called politics. Let's not call it the state because the state might suggest just a kind of bureaucratic apparatus. But uh, an organization of human life in which we learn how to be friends with people beyond our family, let's say beyond, beyond our cousins or beyond the neighborhood. Imagine your chances of human perfectibility and flourishing without learning how to be at peace with in some permanent way, not just transient treaties or something, but in some permanent way with people beyond your cousins. And third, the ecclesial society, the society formed uh, at Pentecost with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so to paraphrase Aristotle, human beings are coupling animals, human beings are political animals, and human beings are ecclesial animals by grace. And it's very important to understand why these societies are not merely arbitrary. It's not like a Kiwanis club. 
Like, what would be lost to the world if Kiwanis clubs stop happening? Probably not much. Some good meals. Some good meals and nice little pins for your lapels. No, these societies are permanently necessary, one in the order of grace for supernatural happiness. But uh, so when I see an encyclical going after that subject matter, I count it as something that must be read. And I'll give you an example. Uh, two examples. Uh, Quas Primos, 1925, Pius XI, on the kingship of Christ. Deals with all three, why Christ is the king in not just over political life, but over social life and especially uh, the domestic order, right? And the other one would be Mystici Corpus, 1943. Uh, and if you go back and read Mystici Corpus on the mystical body of Christ, it has the, the most beautiful and uh, finely worked out social ontology of any papal encyclical, what it means to be in a social union with another person, and why the social union of the church has analogy to other social unions, but why it transcends them. And he wrote this in the middle of World War II, this beautiful notion of a mystical body, people not turning into one substance, but turning into one order of social life, because he thought of all the problems that were going on in Europe and elsewhere during World War II, the thing that really had to be recovered was a sense of social union and that the church is, is, is itself exemplary, not only because its union is supernatural, but because it contains other unions. It contains them. And uh, so, but as I say, don't dismiss encyclicals on the rosary. And I think it's uh, people who have only read Rerum Novarum, maybe, and then Quadragesimo Anno, and then perhaps Centesimus Annus. Well, they know something, but there's a lot that they don't know because they haven't seen the dozens upon dozens upon dozens of things in between them which actually sometimes carry the important idea that's developed a generation later. Professor, you've just spoken to the huge corpus of social teaching when one gets down to reading some of the documents lesser known than the big three you've just articulated. Might it be the case that the corpus of social teaching is bloated? That there are too many documents being written, there's too much being said about too broad a set of issues, the adjudication of which properly falls outside of the magisterium's authority over matters of faith and morals? You know, I do worry about this because when that compendium of Catholic social teaching book came out from uh, Justice and Peace, there is no philosophical order and there's no historical narrative. So, you know, the Kyoto Water Treaty could crop up with 10 times as many words as uh, Mr. G. Corporis. And it, it was well-intentioned, but in a way, it was trying to reproduce or represent the bloat. Man, this thing runs from everything on uh, human rights to adequate clean water, all the way to what it means to be a family. Yeah, and there's problem of the bloat, because some things are more important than others. They, they're more transhistorical than other things. 
And they tend to crop up historically over and over again. I think the word for that is perennial. They're perennials. We're always worried about marriage in the family. We're always worried about political authority. We're always worried about church. Uh, the other problem of the bloat is simply the revolutions in modern communications. So when Leo XIII began, they, they had the telegraph. And he wrote 110 encyclicals, among other reasons, because he could just put it onto the telegraph and the next morning they're reading it in London or Berlin, okay, or even the United States, because they, they're, they're throwing cables across the Atlantic. Then the telephone comes in, even before Leo dies. Pius XI is the first one to use the radio. And I think Pius XII television was televised. Well, that all seems primitive compared to what we have at hand today, which is papal sermons that are reproduced daily from the Casa Santa Marta to tweets to the internet. Uh, and I don't, I don't think any serious person could ever hope to have at his or her command all, all the stuff that's being said. And in one sense, that's a delight because there's so much, but sorting out and ranking what's truly important and worrying about, you know, more than for two hours. I, I would say as a teacher, I would resist the bloat. Give us an assessment of how Catholic social teaching is doing. You've just mentioned some of this, but how's CST doing in the church at large today? How's it doing in the American context, say, since the Second Vatican Council? First, if we are only looking at what could be called social Catholicism, that is, Catholics on the ground, uh, doing works of charity and mercy and justice, uh, Things are going pretty well, actually. I mean, the Catholics are remarkably generous, and in fact, they would even do more than they're asked to do. I would say most educated, college-educated Catholics do know something about our tradition in the sense we're pro-family, we're pro-life. We do not believe that the state is totalitarian, that is, that the state contains everything that's social in the nature of uh, the human being or in supernature, that we have supported voluntary associations, including those that do free bargaining on questions of labor and salary, that we have supported the non-discriminatory basis of public institutions, the both political and educational. I mean, most Catholics know this, even if they couldn't tell you in what order rerum novarum quadragesimal centesimus annus happened, right? So at that level, things are not bad, but compared to mid to late 19th century and the first half of the 20th century, those same kind of educated Catholics back then, there weren't as many of them, knew a lot more. That they simply knew a lot more about the sources, the languages, and discussion and debate about Catholic social teaching, Pius IX, Leo XIII, and so on and so forth, this was standard fare among educated Catholics. They, they had at their command more knowledge of the content than Catholics do today. And 
even though there's many more educated Catholics today than there were, let's say, in 1890, they're not as apt to learn about these things or to be guided through them either in their secular universities, and more than 90% go to non-Catholic universities, or in their parishes. Because what they're going to get in their parishes, if things are going well, is what I call social Catholicism. We're going to have social justice committees. We're going to feed the poor. We're going to do works of mercy and so forth. But in what context are people going to learn the next thing, next level up, the intellectual structure, the coherence, being able to make judgments about this material? I, th I think that is not going as well as it was even two generations ago. And what needs to be done to revive this? What sort of projects or structures should we be trying to cultivate in order to rehabilitate the educated Catholic class's understanding of CST? Would it involve new catechetical programs on the part of the bishops? Right now, we have very little catechesis, not just on the question of social doctrine, but of doctrine as such. So let me give one example. The new translation of the English for uh, the Roman Rite in the liturgy reinserted the word consubstantial. Jesus is consubstantial with the Father. I don't know what the precise percentage is, but I'm going to say less than 5% of any parish in the English-speaking world was anyone ever told what that meant. And here we're not talking about social doctrine, like take this test, what is the meaning of subsidiarity? But how about this test, what does consubstantial mean? Now, in, in any kind of serious human undertaking, even if it's practically oriented, feeding the poor, there's a body of knowledge that has to be passed along that goes with that. All serious undertakings have a body of knowledge in which you need to know like what some of the terms mean, how they differ, the analogies between them, right? And we're not doing so well at that level. We are appealing to people's goodwill on social issues, and probably massive influxes of the Holy Spirit at this point. But we, 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 we do have to constitute teachings from parish level all the way up to give an adult level understanding of the terms, the history, how to read documents. So if someone graduates from the University of Chicago or Notre Dame or Oklahoma State, at the age of 23 years old, this will have been their second degree, high school and, and a BA or a BS, we expect them to have a somewhat adult understanding of fill in the blank. But when a educated Catholic in our country turns 23, I hesitate to think what even the simplest exam could, would uncover about what they know. So it's, it's not just social doctrine. And this is labor intensive. It's the problem with teaching in forever and ever. It's labor intensive. Forget about just doing it by internet. A teacher or teachers have to have FaceTime with students and have to take them through texts, materials, discussions. It's labor intensive and parishes are strapped. 
this is going to be a task for the next generation because uh, it is not as though we can go for generation after generation without doing this. Russell Hittinger is the William K. Warren Professor of Catholic Studies and Research Professor of Law at the University of Tulsa. Professor, thanks for sitting down with us this morning. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. To access more resources, please visit our website and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The music for this episode, Sequence for St. Hilarion, is recorded by the Lumen Christi Institute Artists-in-Residence, Scola Antiqua of Chicago, on their CD, West Meets East, Sacred Music from the Torino Codex.